Well, we all love a good story, don't we? There was a man with two sons. It's an opening line. And Jesus is telling us by that classical opening line, which would have been very familiar to people in Bible times, there once was a man with two sons, been very familiar. He's saying this story is not literally true. He's actually saying, he's giving us permission to receive this story as a tale. But of course, because it's the divine word, it's a tale carrying divine truth. Makes it no less true in the sight of God, the meaning. Some have said that in a post-apocalyptic world where everything gets destroyed, if just one scripture text survived, this one tale, this one story, would be enough to cultivate and propagate the gospel all over again by itself. It's so significant to the meaning of the good news. So we have to listen up for the divine truth in this story, if it's that important. For Jesus' listeners, it's a familiar storyline. In an ancient patriarchal world, truth and meaning always gets passed down through the generations, through stories about fathers and sons. Significant pairs of brothers dotted down through history, through the scriptures with their fathers, from Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau to Isaac and Ishmael and others. So through fathers and sons, through the ancient text, truth gets communicated. And Jesus' first audience, those who were the recipients of this story, very first time round, they know exactly who the characters refer to in the story. You see, at this point, Jesus is growing popularity amongst tax collectors and sinners, the despised section of Israelite society, who welcome Jesus' message and turn up again and again to listen to him is alarming the religious establishment. They're really phased by what's happening, really troubled by it, really perturbed. And Luke says the Pharisees are resentful. So we read this morning in verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus to teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he associated with such sinful people, even eating with them. Now you can put various different words in there. The New International uh, Version translated that the teachers of the law muttered against Jesus. The message translation says the teachers of the religious law growled and um, the NRSV said they grumbled. So straight away we know who the elder brother is 
in this story, at least for Jesus' first listeners. It doesn't take a GCSE to work that out. And if we work that out, then it doesn't take a GCSE to work out who the younger brother is either. It's the sinners, isn't it? They're so-called sinners that Jesus is associating with, who kind of serve as the younger kid brother in the story. Who is the father in this story for the first audience? Well, you know, some people have said, and I can see this, that it, although for us Christians reading back into the story, this is definitely God, the father figure, and certainly if truth stories carry meaning for us today, that's right. It didn't necessarily have to be that way in the first century that actually it's a, a story about a dysfunctional family and it's all about relationships being restored in the sight of God. What's gripping for us this morning is that those characters and that scene and those family dynamics are timeless, aren't they? You see, it's the story of any dysfunctional family. Hands up here this morning who'd like to say they belong to a perfect family. Do stand up. The fact that I'm standing up doesn't mean that I belong to a perfect family. Neither that I've come from a perfect family or that I've helped create a perfect family. It doesn't mean that at all, just the opposite. And we all know at times, yes, Josie, you'd agree with me, wouldn't you? At times, we can be dysfunctional. On a bad day, a bad week, over many years, we are all part of dysfunctional families because we are not God. And so, that story, that tale from 2,000 years ago is kind of our story this morning. Maybe today, through stories of fathers and sons, Maybe fathers and fathers. Maybe mothers and sons. Maybe mothers and mothers. It's our story. Today, we have a bit more of a luxury in interpretation. We, we can change things around a bit. And we're free to do that. We're not messing with the scriptures by changing things around a little bit. We're free, for example, to change characters in the story. So are we this morning the reckless, wasteful kid? Are we the dutiful first son? You are free to allow the scriptures to speak to you and help you find your identity. Or do we take an even bigger leap and identify with the father in that story, praying for our children to come home. Is that a possible interpretation? We're actually also free to change the title. You see, title of stories weren't original to the scriptures. They actually got included in the first Latin translation of the Bible. So they kind of plastered on to the original scriptures to make it more readable. 
I don't think Jesus calls it the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not convinced that title works. And nor was my RE teacher when I was 18, year old, 18 years old who sat in a class who, uh, who was a, a wonderful woman. And she used to vehemently think that it's uh, not a good title. So we are free to rename it this morning. So having heard the story three ways this morning, what would you call the story? Would you give it a different title? Call out if you choose a different title. Talk to each other. What would you rename the story if you were going to rename it at all? What would you call it? Have a chat. Any thoughts? Any call-outs? Ah, Stevie, stand up and tell us that one. Come on, shout it out. It's worth hearing. Thank you. Shall we give him a clap? The story of the loving parent. Is there anyone who thinks differently? I want you to really engage with this scripture. Anyone can do better. The waiting father, thank you. Any others? The absent mother. Oh, you're on the roll, Richard. <laughs> Anyone better, Richard Godian? Or dare we? <laughs> well, there are many examples of alternative titles, of, of which those would be ones. The welcoming father, the lost son and the welcoming father. The prodigal son and his brother, lost sons and the welcoming father, the waiting father. Titles matter because they hint at a, a perspective. They tell us what we should be looking and listening for in the story. So this morning, let's look at our text through the perspective of, of Lent. I put those two things together because we are in Lent, and it is the lectionary text this morning, the story of the prodigal son. So I thought if we combine those and look at this story through the eyes of Lent. You see, this is a, a season of spring cleaning, of decluttering, of repentance, of confession, so what difference does it make to hear the tale of the prodigal son in Lent instead of reading it through Easter or Epiphany or Christmas? What does a Lent perspective help us to see that we've not realised before? Well, I think that Lent helps us to see the lostness of all the characters in the story. Egyptian culture calls this parable the lost son. It's clever because it doesn't actually say which son is lost. And this morning we recognise that there's the lostness of the younger brother, lost in relationship, lost in excess. Prodigal actually means wasteful, extravagant. 
lost in debt, lost in status. Feeding pigs would have been a degrading task for a Jew. Lost in relation to a support network. We're kind of used to the perspective of the younger son, aren't we, in Christian evangelical circles. But what about the lostness of the elder brother, lost from trying to measure love, to make the sums work, to keep the rules, lost in envy of his kid brother who takes off on a whim with an inheritance not even due yet, lost from the realization that counting up our good works just doesn't work in relationships, lost from being given good gifts but unable to bring himself to use them, to own them, afraid to claim his own maturity. And then I'm going to be daring enough to talk about the lostness of the father. You might argue with me about this, all the theological reasons why a perfectly loving God cannot possibly be lost And yet here in this story that carries divine truth with it and therefore authority from heaven, the landowner is incomplete until both his sons are home, until the family is somehow put back together. And some call this story the lovesick father. Why else does Jesus, just before this story, tell the story of the shepherd who, having 99 sheep in his pen, still leaves that 99 to find the one? Because the kingdom is not complete until we're all back together reconciled. So yes, I think Lent helps us all to see our lostness, whichever character we identify with this morning. Lent helps us see the reasons, the instances which lead to severed relationships, to suspicion, to an unwillingness to admit our faults. But Lent also helps us see how our desire for autonomy and for control can cut us off from community. And Lent helps us see when and how we think only of ourselves. And it helps us to see our mixed motives for repentance. And it helps us to see when we are truly in the depths of despair. And it helps us to see how our longing for love leads us to bad choices that end up disconnecting us from those who could actually offer us genuine love. Lent is not a comfortable season, but it's very necessary. And through its eyes, this story invites us to stand in the experience of lostness, whichever brother we identify with, or even with the father who weeps for his children. And maybe because of that, we do need to change the title.
Because what the story ultimately tells us is essentially about a God who seeks us and finds us when we're lost and welcomes us home. The central plank of this story is neither brother actually, but the loving father rushing out to meet us. And the message is ultimately about his indescribable joy when we come back. And that needs to transform us. If we're going to take this story on, then we have to live our lives in the light of that lovesick God who waits for us to come back to him. I love this story because the text says that God, if the Father is God and we're making that link, does something ancient landowners never do in Bible times. Imagine a God who picks up his skirts, his long dress, rolls it up and runs down the road towards the son or the daughter. This is not what respectable landowners in the Bible do. This is not biblical etiquette. In fact, it would be seen as quite a female type image. But here is God, dashing towards us, skirts rolled up, legs bare, making a public fool of himself. God doesn't even wait for his son's desperate, half-hearted apology to finish. Frankly, he doesn't care. The family is whole. The boy is back. Trust me, the other landowners will be talking about this ridiculous behavior in the pub tonight. Not that I know. I hear so. But this landowner doesn't care. You see, he's a parent before he's a landowner. Earlier, we sang about the reckless love of God. Now that song has come in for some criticism in the church. How can God's love ever be reckless? It actually means foolish. And by some standards, God's love is foolish, isn't it? It is extravagant. It is scandalous. Love that throws a feast for a son who ran off with an early inheritance and blew it. Love that hands you a coat when you steal its shirt. Love that blesses enemies, that bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Look, this is a provocative tale, I know. We can interchange the characters. We can play with the title. We actually don't have to imagine God in a landowner's outfit or even come to that sitting on a white cloud with a long white beard. We don't have to do that. But we cannot mess with the provocative truth of a prodigal, wasteful, extravagant, divine love. And that that love is the foundation of our being and our hope and it changes the world 
And so simply this morning, I think I just want to tell you, as we go through Lent, through this difficult season of repentance, that God loves you fiercely, vulnerably, unendingly. Whether you've wasted opportunities or been faithfully knuckling down at things, wondering when you'll ever be noticed, God loves you. Whether you think this is the best news in the world or you barely care, God loves you. Whether you're here this morning with joy or you come reluctantly, whether you've had a lifelong relationship with God, are finding your way, or even aren't sure God exists, God loves you immeasurably. Whether you know that you're lost or you're just waking up to it, God loves you. Look, whenever we experience authentic love, be that through another human being, but when we know in our hearts that we've met face to face with authentic love, we have to ask ourselves, where did that come from? Except as a gift of God who is all-round, unconditional love for us. You see, we don't have the capacity in ourselves to love like that. But here is God, who despite what we are and what we've done, says, welcome home. Home where love is the first and final arbiter of anything that ultimately really matters. At the end of the day, after all our good works, after all our achievements, after all our successes, even after all our failures, love is the only arbiter of anything that matters. And I think we know that deep down in our hearts. So may we remember that love of this kind is a work in all of us and it comes from God the Father, from love we came and to love we will return. May we know that in God's love we find wholeness and in wholeness we will find peace. Today, this fourth Sunday of Lent, is actually known as Rejoicing Sunday. The joy of the Father in welcoming us home and our joy in knowing at last that we are finally home in the all-round love of God. Amen. Let's pray. In a moment, we're going to sing the power of your love. God of reckless prodigals and self-righteous siblings, we praise you for always being there in times of joyful celebration and times of distress, in times of noble faithfulness and wasteful foolishness. We praise you for your gentle wisdom that whispers in the dark and leads us to light, 
Forgive us when we forget your counsel, and by choice or ignorance, we wander blind without you, lost. Thank you for calling us back and for rushing out to meet us with forgiveness and grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. For it's love that you need, love that you left, love you have found in returning. This morning as we sing and pray, may we be sure of our return home. And if you're not there yet, I invite you to come and pray. Pray with each other and turn back to the Father who picks up his skirts and dashes down the road to meet you. Amen.